0: This call is being recorded. You need to
1: go longer, that's fine.
0: Okay, perfect. Welcome to another episode of the Groundings Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Springer. Today's episode is actually on the island of Haiti, which is currently seeing uprisings and protests all across the islands, really in the thousands right now. These are anti-corruption protests that sort of have an anti-imperialist spin to them as well. But I really want to get into sort of the specifics of the protest, why they're protesting, what's the historical and current context of these protests. And here to help you and me understand this a little bit better is Brian Concannon. Brian is from the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, and he's a human rights lawyer. Before we continue, I'm going to let Brian introduce himself. So, Brian.
1: Uh, hi, Devin. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, I'm right now. I'm the director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, which is a human rights nonprofit in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Um, I've been at IJDH for the last 15 years. Before that, I lived in Haiti for nine years. Uh, most of that time, I was working with the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, or International Lawyers Office, which was a law office set up by um, Haiti's. Progressive Aristide administration in 1995, and the purpose of the office was to help democratize the justice system. At the time, they, they there had been uh, the restoration of President Aristide, who had been who spent three years in exile because of a um, a U.S. supported coup, and he had come back, and you had had elections, you had a reasonably elected legislature, but the justice system had spent 300 years evolving to serve whoever has the guns and the money. And and President Darasteep felt that an outside um, source of pressure could help move the justice system more to responding to, to the people than to the people with the guns and the money. So he, he uh, set up this office called the BAI, and we used prominent human rights cases as a way to make the justice system work and show to the people that the justice system could work, and our approach in there was a very, uh, very much a collective approach. We you know, we did our legal work, but but that alone would not have had any success. We we worked very closely with uh, victims' movements, with victims' organizations, to help them apply the political pressure we needed to to get the cases into court.
0: So you really have long roots in Haiti and doing this work around Haiti especially from sort of the the legal aspect of it. So I think that's sort of a very important
1: insight. And let me tell you why why I did come back into the United States. I was in Haiti from 1995 until 2004. And in 2004... Uh, the u s actually kidnapped haiti 's president and sent him to the Central African Republic after after supporting a well first a development assistance embargo that that really brought the government to its knees and then then a an armed force that that took over parts of the country and At that time, our work of getting the justice system to work for poor people was no longer possible. In fact, the 10 years of progress under the democratic regimes in Haiti was erased overnight and we went back back to a to a dictatorship. And at that point it became clear to me because all this hard work had been had been thrown away and it was really because the US president at the time it was uh, George Bush didn't like Haiti's president's economic policies and It it struck me that as long as a U.S. president could overthrow a Haitian president uh, because he didn't like his economic policies, then nothing in Haiti was sustainable. And so what we decided to start this organization, IJDH, as a way to bring the fight for justice from Haiti into places where decisions about Haitian rights are made. So lots of Haitian Decisions about Haitians' rights are made in Port-au-Prince, but many others are made in Washington and New York and Paris and and Ottawa and, and other places, and we try to help the Haitians fight in those places.
0: And that's a very critical point to make because the history of Haiti, at least for the past century, has been in tandem with the history of U.S. meddling on the island and to a lot of Westerners who may listen to this program who might not know much about Haiti's history, that could be surprising or jarring to them. But the role the U.S. and and other sort of foreign entities like uh, France have had in Haiti is, is extensive. Um, and very
1: decisive. You know, just in terms of, and it's really interesting that Americans don't know much about our relationship with With Haiti, it's really suppressed. I mean, I was an American history major in Haiti uh, in in college, and I knew nothing about our relationship with Haiti. Um, In fact, the longest U.S. Marine occupation of any country was in Haiti. Um, We 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 very much spent a lot of energy uh, before the U.S. Civil War in trying to keep Haiti from being recognized by the international community. We repeatedly intervened in their affairs, and and are still intervening right up through through today.
0: Before we talk about the current protests and uprisings taking place, I would like for you to establish some historical context. Can you speak a little bit to the historical causes of the protests uh, that we're seeing today?
1: There are long term, medium term, and short term causes. The long term causes is that Haiti has suffered uh, foreign intervention and domestic corruption and brutality by elites and by by both economic and political elites, that has left Haiti with a government that does not provide basic government services. Haiti is deeply impoverished. Uh, it's by far the the lowest per capita income of any country in the in the in the Americas. Um, it's had over 33 coups d'états. So lots of political instability. It it's always ranks last in the hemisphere on on almost every social indicator. whether education, whether it's uh, literacy, access to clean water, health, uh, life expectancy, I mean, Haiti is by far, by far in last place. And you know one really notable factor that you mentioned the hundred years, last hundred years of U.S. meddling, uh, before that Haiti had very serious French meddling. So it, uh, Haiti was, was a French colony and in 1804 Haitians won their independence, and they won it the old-fashioned way. They they beat the French. They beat Napoleon um, at a war, and but the nobody else would help Haiti. So it had no allies because it was a world run by slave-owning states, and it couldn't get couldn't get fair trading terms with anybody or any kind of political support from other governments. And France said, "Look, if you want to stay independent, you have to pay us a lot of money." And if you don't pay us a lot of money we're going to come back and we're going to reinstitute slavery the haitians haitian leaders avoided paying that for 19 years but then in in 1923 they felt they had no other choice that the french were going to uh take them over and so they agreed to this debt that took them over 100 years to pay um, it's been calculated in current terms at, at uh, about 25 billion uh and and part of it was reimbursing the French for lost property of the slaves being freed. So Haitians after winning their 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 freedom in a war then had to pay for it a second time. The freedom of their own bodies they had to pay. And that was through this loan that took a hundred years to 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 pay back. And throughout that hundred years, the whole Haitian economy was geared towards getting the foreign exchange it needed to pay the debt because they were so they were terrified that the French would use that as an excuse to take over. And so instead of investing in, in domestic industry and education and human resources in the country, they put everything into export agriculture, coffee and cacao and uh, sugar, so that they could get the hard currency and they needed to pay the debt. And that's a big factor in why Haiti is still, uh, why Haiti is so poor.
0: There's sort of this tendency to, at least in the Western media, describe Haiti as, quote unquote, the most impoverished country in the West. And in some ways, from an economic standpoint, that might be true. But it's of my opinion that that term sort of does little to contextualize why Haiti is the way it is. Would you agree with that?
1: You know, I, it's, it's kind of funny, though, that, that, that the way you described it, the most impoverished, many people think that's an improvement because often it's the poorest country, as if poor mm. poverty is some endemic feature of Haitian life. And, and And actually, many people are saying that impoverished is a an improvement because it at least implies that there was some process of that happening. Uh, but you're totally right. I mean, people <clears throat> media, political leaders, academics, they talk about <clears throat> about Haiti's poverty as something that is is the sole result of of Haitian rather than the result of a political process that was mainly dominated by the by the slaveholding and former slaveholding countries.
0: Of course. And because this podcast is in the vein of Walter Rodney, I recommend all the listeners go and read uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. A lot of the processes of economic sort of exploitation he describes in that book can also be applied across the Caribbean and places like Haiti. So turning a little bit from the historical to the, the current political climate, really since the 2010 election, Uh, we've seen an increase in corruption and dissent and outrage in Haiti, in Haiti's um, sort of political society. Can you give more current context for why we're seeing mass protests today?
1: Sure. Well, the 2010 elections, the uh, United States State Department, especially Hillary Clinton, who was a Secretary of State, they actually changed those elections. So in Haiti's system, you have you have uh, many parties can run in the first round, and if nobody wins fifty percent in the first round, then you go into a a second round. The the, the 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 election was a mess, as many of us predicted it was going to be, um, and the most Human rights observer, most observers and human rights organizations said this is a mess. You have to redo it. In fact, most of the presidential candidates got together at noontime on election day and said, "Stop! We've got to re- we've got to redo this. You can't have a good election coming out of this." When the official results came out, uh, Secretary of State Clinton just reversed the results and said, "Okay, we have there were these problems, and instead of redoing it." They said, we're going to switch the second and third spots, had no statistical reason for doing that. It was just to get someone they wanted to be president in. And so, and when the Haitians objected and they said, you know, we can't do that, you have no statistical reason for doing that. uh, Secretary Clinton said, well, if you don't reverse it, we're going to take away all your U.S. visas uh, from, from the Electoral Council and the government. And that was enough to to force a change in the results, and so you got this president Michel Martelly, who was appointed by, really got there because the, the U.S. State Department put him there, not the Haitian people, and he started a trend of, of, of very unaccountable government because they knew that that they didn't have popular support, and he continued that way. What he did was raided the treasury, especially this was just after the earthquake when money was coming in. Um, And he kind of, he raided that, that, uh, that chest of money and used it to feed a patronage network that kept him in power. And he was able to, uh, after there was a, there were problems with the elections for his reelection in 2015 and 2016, there were enough protests to have them Redo one round of the elections, but in the end, the elections were still corrupt and violent. So much so that eighty um, percent of voters abstained, and because turnout was so low, President Martelly's party was able to win a you know a majority of a very small pool of voters, and that kept, that that put his successor Jovenel Moise in power. Um, and once again, Mr. Moise is the, in power because of the patronage network. Not because of Haitian voters, and so he is serving that network. Um, the earthquake money has dried up. Um, another big source of money was the Petrocaribe program, where Venezuela gave Haiti um, imported oil to Haiti, sold it at a at a um, a low price, and also gave Haitian government very generous repayment terms. We only had to pay us, uh, I think it was about half then and the rest of the, the other half was financed over 20 years. The Haitian government took that. The, the idea was you, you use the money to invest in the country. And then when you have to start paying back, you, um, you'll have you'll have productive investments that will be bearing fruit, and you'll be able to use that money to pay back the loan. Uh, instead, President Martelly and then President Moise after him used the Petro Caribe money to, to to fund their patronage network. Um, that has now dried up. There's no more Venezuela. There's no more Petro Caribe money coming in. There's no more earthquake money coming in. And so the president has been just raiding the raiding the treasury, taking money that was designed for teachers and doctors and keeping hospitals open and paving roads. Uh, They've been (laughs) printing money. And so as a result, Haiti's gourd, the currency has lost half its value against the dollar in the last five years. Uh, Inflation's at 15%. There's a record government deficit. They're forced to cut even more things. They're going to be forced to cut fuel subsidies. Uh, All those are really having a strong impact on on your average Haitians. Most Haitians get by on $5 a day and many get by on much less $2 a day and that does not leave a lot of extra money. Already people in that range are not eating enough and when food prices double your not enough meals are getting cut in half. Uh, That's leading to, to, to great desperation great misery people are obviously dying they can't get health care they can't get enough food to eat and uh, Haitians really feel like their backs up are up against a wall and that they at this point they have they have nothing to lose um, so they've been they've been taking to the streets they first took to the streets most in, in terms of the latest cycle of protests in July when the government in in as a requirement to an international Monetary Fund buyout the government raised fuel prices which inflicted misery on on the poor people people took to the streets and protested since then there's been a series of protests the the largest organizing principle has been corruption especially around the the petrocaribe money uh, estimates are that about 2 billion dollars was stolen from from that fund and, and given to to the the president's uh, friends and patrons network rather than to actually invest uh, the government keeps, the government's really unable to respond to the protests because it's it's in a bind. It, it, it needs to fund its patron's network to stay in office. Uh, it can't stop doing that. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't have the money to to do anything else. Uh, and so it's it's it keeps responding with these um, extremely small measures. It makes announcements of things like a, a state of emergency that doesn't really, change anything um it makes small concessions towards towards advancing the petro investigation but not not any serious concessions because it can't because it's the, the government is the is the person who's the uh the perpetrator of the, of the petro caribe scandal uh, and so it's it's in a, it's in a tough spot and and i don't see how the government is going to find a way out of this other than to to shoot its way out um, it's it's done that at a low level for the last few months, uh, but it did it at a high level in November when uh, when seventy people were killed by a joint gang police operation in a in a uh, poor neighborhood where where that's a highly politicized neighborhood and they wanted to keep people from going to protest scheduled. Five days later, and they did it by sending gangs and police to to ransack houses. They ransacked over hundred houses. They killed over seventy people, um, and really terrorized the, not only this the neighborhood but also all all of Haiti. And there's risks that the government is going to keep doing that as as its as its back is against the wall even more.
0: You kind of covered my next question already. The sort of sentiment that the Haitian government can't come out and outright denounce or indict the Petrocaribe corruption because it would be a self-indictment, right, and a self-denunciation in a sense. And then I was going to ask you about the Venezuela connection to all of this, because what we see in images online and social media is people are marching. Some of them have even had Venezuelan flags. A lot of people were upset that the, the Haitian president actually went against Venezuela and sided with the opposition, Guaido, because of pressure by the U.S. I know that, of course, is a factor in these protests as well. Not that it isn't very clearly about Haiti and ha- Haitian internal problems and in politics, but there is this sort of global connection um, to a wrong that's been done. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And, and Haitians have, feel a very strong bond with Venezuela. Uh, Back in 1991, when President Aristide was overthrown by a coup d'etat, Venezuela sent a plane to to get him to safety. In 2007, when democracy was restored after the 2004 coup d'etat against President Aristide, Hugo Chavez came to Haiti the whole way from the airport to Haiti's National Palace, which is, I think, about five miles. The the streets were just thronged. It took forever for the... the, uh, to get there, and actually, President Chavez got out and ran around with the crowd, and everybody just embraced him. So he was he was a uh, you know a hero in Haiti even before Petro Caribe started, um, and then Petro Caribe was seen seen by Haitians as as a very generous program by the Venezuelans. It was seen, and when it was announced, it still is seen uh, as generous, but obviously, great concern that their that their uh, their leaders wasted this gift and as the current efforts to destabilize Venezuela have proceeded over the last few years Haitians know it's the exact same playbook that was used to destabilize President Aristide uh, ahead of the, the 2004 coup d'etat um, same thing of you, you put uh, economic sanctions you you uh, demonize in the media not necessarily having facts but just keep you keep Repeating and repeating that this person is a bad guy, and people start believing it, um, and not having a a um, diverse media discourse which questions the official uh, the official pronouncements. And so Haitians know what 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 Venezuela is going through, and and didn't like it when it happened to them, and don't like it that it's happening to Venezuelans. The government knew that, and and as as recently as a couple weeks before the the OAS vote, the government, the president announced that that Haiti does not abandon a friend like Venezuela easily when it was being pressured to vote against Venezuela. But when the vote happened, to everybody's shock,ing the Haitian government uh, voted at the OAS voted to to not recognize President Maduro. Uh, that was seen as betraying a friend. It was seen as betraying a principle. Uh, it was seen as betraying Haiti's long history of, of independence as being the first independent country after the United States in the hemisphere. And actually, you know, one thing that, that's important to remember is Haitians actually helped Simon Bolivar in his independence uh, twice when, when, he was, when Bolivar was kicked out of South America. He came to Haiti, got, not only got shelter, but got guns and, and money and other kinds of support. And that led to two of his expeditions, the second one being successful in liberating parts of
0: of South America. And looking back on the history of Haitian and Venezuelan solidarity really puts into perspective just how influential Haiti and their revolution and, you know, to be the first Black Republic and the sort of first countrywide slave revolt, at least in the Caribbean and the Western Hemisphere, how influential that was, I mean, all across Latin America and the Caribbean and to Black people everywhere. And they were giving material support to others, and that's you know, a history, unfortunately, that's either unmentioned or silenced often. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Another chance and sort of common sloganeering and phrasing I'm seeing in a lot of the protests are discussing Western NGOs and the roles that NGOs have in the politics of Haiti. Even the Clinton Foundation, for example, is one of the first ones that's often mentioned. Can you speak a little bit about the sentiments that are felt towards NGOs and the NGO industrial complex in Haiti.
1: First of all, you can't separate the the NGOs from what Haitians call in quotes the international community, and and that that usually means the the, you know, the powerful governments, usually former slaveholding countries that have the greatest influence in Haiti. First, United States, but also France, England, and and Canada, and the NGOs most of the NGOs that run in Haiti most of their money comes from 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 governments in the United States USAID the European Union Canada and they say that they're not implementing policy they're, but they, they really are one example is and, and it's an example that's a that's a good one as we as we talk about about uh, humanitarian aid in Venezuela is that in the lead-up to the 2004 coup the Bush administration imposed a development assistance embargo on Haiti, and that meant not only did did that stop U.S. assistance to the Haitian government, it also stopped other people from doing, including Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, um, NGOs, European and other donors. The U.S. just stopped anybody from giving any money to the Haitian government and instead what they did because they feared that there would be a huge backlash against them so instead they sent the money through ngos to provide basic government services instead of instead of empowering the haitian government to do it they starved the government they gave it to the ngos now all these ngos have on their website how that they're there to empower the haitian people and to be sustainable but when push came to shove they took the money that was quite obviously, and, and, and actually explicitly being used to undermine the Haitian government. That obviously put a bad taste in people's mouth. A longer term problem has been just that the NGOs are not accountable to the people they're, they're trying, they claim they're trying to help. Um, Haitians see NGO people traveling around in the nice cars, living in nice houses, going out to the fancy restaurants. They don't see them actually asking Haitians what they think should be done in terms of development, and they don't see them integrating Haitians into, you know, into high-level positions in a lot of the in a lot of the development and NGO work. It's almost a joke that whenever you see an NGO plate of a, a car with an NGO plate or an NGO logo on it, the only Haitian in the car is usually the driver. The Haitians obviously understand this is not a good way to do development and that they're being excluded but also it's just the power is staying in the hands of you know of the, of the europeans and the north americans that have ill-used haitians for, you know, for for a couple of centuries
0: one thing that we often see is ngos um, and nonprofits are created really as means of creating a donation trail and also tax evasion, c- corruption, exploitation, CEOs with million-dollar salaries while the money barely even trickles down to the Haitian people. And this is the same thing we actually see with a lot of NGOs here in the U.S., uh, in poor and black communities, as well as all across the world. One of the things that has been most interesting to me about these protests and uprisings taking place in Haiti at the same time that there's this unrest in Venezuela, has been the differences in media reporting and perception. At the time of this recording, the protests, they've been going on for several months, but sort of this heightened and recharged ring of protests has been going on for the past 10 days, and the mainstream and corporate media has been almost silent on it. Contrasting that with the perception and reporting on what's happening in Venezuela, where we're being told that the opposition protesters who are largely U.S. and CIA-backed are radicals who we should support, and the media is focusing so much attention on them and ousting a quote-unquote allegedly corrupt dictator, versus Haiti, where we're being told that the protesters need reconciliation with the president and they should act peacefully in the U.S. as when not being silent on what's happening in Haiti, have been disparaging towards protests in comparison with Venezuela. I guess my question is really on media perception and reporting. Does it go back to the same principle of a self-indictment that if U.S. corporate and mainstream media were to heavily indict the Haitian government for corruption, it would sort of be a self-indictment because they've considered them allies and have done so much to sort of help sustain their power?
1: I think it operates at several levels. One of them is definitely that, the, the, the risk of, of a self-indictment. Another, and I think this works at both for both government and for media, is you look at who's protesting in, in Venezuela now, as in Haiti in, in 2002 and 2003. It was relatively wealthy, relatively light-skinned, relatively well-dressed people. And that is covered differently than, than the protests in Haiti now, which are, which are poor, darker-skinned people. And the poor, darker skinned people are not counted as equally human. And even within the very limited coverage that has happened, you'll see this coverage, you'll see all these burning tires and cars being broken and and that's what gets on the news those kinds of things when when someone's property is destroyed but they're not talking about the grinding poverty that are killing people because health health centers have been have been shut down they talk about they'll say oh seven people have been killed in these protests they don't say that most of those have been killed by police nor do they did they report that 70 people were killed just two months ago by, by the government and its, and its allied gangs to try to stop the protests. So not only are the protests themselves selectively covered, but when they do cover the, the, uh, the protests, they're very selective in, in how, they, how they do cover it.
0: It's always amazing to me that there's sort of a continuity of problems persistent in protests and its coverage and responses to it, right? Where we see people of darker skin and, and who are poor, Uprising—it's almost never, you know, shown in a nice light. Whether it's in Ferguson, Missouri, or Palestine, or Haiti. Really, that's all I have for you today in this interview. I know we've covered a lot of ground really quick. I sort of saw this as a general overview episode for my listeners that could be quick and educational. Just, you know, really get some educational resources out there in this time. Is there anything else you would like to add?
1: Not that I can think of. You asked some really good questions, so. can't think of anything that we left
0: out. Thank you, Brian, so much for your time. And I hope everyone listening, you can go and check out Brian's work at the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. This has been another episode of The Groundings Podcast.